0: June 2024, you are listening to Living Proof, the cultural archive of real lives happening. Issue six of Living Proof magazine features graffiti writers Katsu and Camel, skateboarder Sean Powers and Tino Razo, rappers YL and Starker, and artists Nicole McLaughlin, Nate Lohman, Fei Wei, Tom Hardwick Allen, Ned Vina, and Tao Lin, available now on our Patreon and online shop. Live Improved Magazine, Katsu Issue, June 2024. Yo. Alright, we're live. Check. Dude, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. It's kind of crazy because just like the homie sent us a picture of uh, you, like you screenshot of the Andy Roy shit. Yeah, yeah. And post on your page and then I'm like, oh shit, dude. So then that's when... That's why I yeah. like reached out because I had I had no idea you know it's like we never know who listens or anything like yeah, that yeah yeah
1: so. like uh, I think well first thank you for having me like I appreciate it I respect all that you do and appreciate it um, but I think I first maybe got turned onto the show through Nick Atkins oh um, sick dude because Nick's like an old friend of mine and stuff mm-hmm. and so then I just started watching it and what's cool is like. You know, even though I'm not a part of graffiti culture, I still, like, appreciate it and appreciate the stories, the passion, and everything that goes into it. So it's, like, I don't know. It's just, like, a generally good podcast. Dude, that's, thank you so, so much, that's like That's why. And then when you see Andy Roy, like, you just know <laughs> he's going to have stories. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So, you know, I watch that. and I watch a bunch of other ones, too. And then it's funny who... The people I know just in life that gets shouted out on the show. I'm like, Oh, yeah. cause I don't really know about their graffiti stuff. Mm. You know, I know about mm-hmm. their art stuff or this or that. And so to hear their name get brought up, like I was like, Oh, that's sick.
0: You like, never tried out writing graffiti, like all your years, just, you know, being in the downtown scene, skating or just being a part of, you know, a lot of graffiti writers get into other forms yeah. of art as well.
1: No, I mean, it's like when I was mad young, like 12 or something, maybe I'd go down the train tracks with some friends in Jersey and it's weird like you didn't do it unless you took it seriously yeah you know you didn't just like fuck around like so i knew pretty much from the beginning that i wasn't good at it and like i'm not wasting anybody's time i'm probably not even a good lookout like i'm just n- not good at anything <laughs> and so i just stuck to skateboarding you know that was like my shit and yeah. uh but yeah like like i have friends were Good graffiti writers and good DJs and that kind of thing, and it's sort of like respect thing. You just yeah. kind of like say like, no, that's that's you. I'm gonna do me. You know.
0: Yeah, it, it's crazy. Like uh, just the era that you came up in. It's it's often it's often frequented. Like it's a frequent topic on our show. Just uh, all the art and culture that came out of there, as well as the difference in the neighborhood, particularly like the downtown neighborhood, how different it was, and obviously just you you being a part of that and it's often talked about how cheap the rent was and how mm-hmm. not cheap it is now and how uh, that cheap rent essentially fueled creativity and fueled a lot of the art and culture that gave back to, like in a major way to America and just to the world as a yeah. whole. Um, and I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that, like seeing things change to the point where there's just it costs so much to be down there yeah. that it's it's difficult to, I guess, be creative because you don't have as much time if you're working your ass off to make three K just for your rent or something like that.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, there's, but it goes way back. It goes back to like the fifties and sixties and shit. And like all the artists lived down in Tribeca and stuff and they had these giant lofts and in these lofts, they could create these monumental things. And then the galleries needed to compete with that. And so the galleries got bigger and kind of imitated these big lofts. Um, and so slowly over time, like shit got more expensive but it also kind of like made the creativity get smaller cause you didn't have these spaces to kind of create and just experiment yeah. like, pretty much. So now like a lot of artists are just painters cause you can pack a stack some paintings in a corner. It wouldn't like, it's not that big of a deal, but you can't make a giant sculpture. Mm. Um, but like, cause I'm from Jersey originally. And so when I came to the city, I was 12. That was like when I first started coming in, going to Brooklyn banks, like that kind of thing. And you, you could survive off five dollars a day, you know, just being you get your like one dollar gallon of iced tea or whatever, and whatever, like get a cup from Burger King that everyone used, that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know, like how any of us really kind of made money DJing helped a lot of people out for a long time everybody DJed for a minute and that was cool you make 300 bucks cash a night and you could just like do whatever with it but um but yeah everybody just kind of got by and a lot of skate houses 3 4 people like always somebody on the couch kind of a thing random roommates like oh there's just this dude who needs a roommate but but we managed to have a lot of fun. And, it, and Yeah, like none of my friends really had jobs. Really? They were like in bands. Or and, they, and they lived and essentially like, downtown. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's like kind of hard to remember. It was all kind of a blur. Um, and there were so many different stages to the kind of my version of downtown. Like, but... Yeah, so I don't know. It's almost like you almost have to be more specific. Yeah, yeah. Do you, the remember, time do you remember how? What, like for example, what was one of your rent prices when you lived,
0: when you lived down there during that time period? I mean,
1: it was always around like five hundred bucks. You know, sometimes I was just saying I lived out in Bay Ridge and it was like two hundred bucks, but that's because it was somebody's grandma's house and it was five bedrooms and they wanted a thousand dollars rent. Um. I think. I remember I was living in Brooklyn, like Prospect Heights or some shit. And it was like 750 And that was like, and then the room came up in the East Village for like 900 And I was like, shit, all right, I'm going to make the jump. Because you're spending that on subways already. Yeah, right? yeah, And when you're going out seven days a week, getting home at 4 a.m. sucks. You know, like the, you got to wait 45 minutes for the train. You're all drunk and fucked up and like, man, I just want to live, like, in the center of it, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so that, I would say until I moved in with my wife, I paid under $1,000 a month. So that was probably 11 years ago. And I was like, I'm only paying 1500 Like, I was, like, mad cheap, you know? I'm like, mm-hmm. now she's got me paying a crazy amount. But, um... But, like, I've never had a credit card in my life. Like, really? You still don't have a credit card? I just got one.
0: What? Because I
1: have a business. Yeah. So, but, like, I'm, like, a cash dude, you know. And so, like, I'd pay my rent. I've never been on a lease. I've always just lived in, like, other people's spots and paid them cash at the end of the month. And you just figure out how to get that cash together, you know. Wow. Um. So, so we were never, like, balling, but made made do you know and we had like I said like a lot of fun just kind of mm. getting by what do you think that does
0: to just the the like the process of building a small business in New York especially if you're in that area but really just everywhere everywhere in New York what do you think that does to that process like for example you you running galleries finding a space that is you know at least somewhat affordable so that way you can at least you know make the overhead every month and you have to like you said in some other interview, it becomes like a business oriented model. Everything becomes like a business oriented model. And I mean, in dealing with things like art and culture, like it shouldn't necessarily always be a business oriented model, more so it's about like creating passion and beauty and, you know, showing talents. And it just kind of fucks everything up. Um, What do you think it does? I
1: mean, for me, I thought COVID was really interesting and fucked up and weird. But I was like, now's the time where kids can fucking actually get in this. And now's the time where kids should be opening art galleries, and music venues, doing whatever the fuck they want. Because it's the only opportunity they're going to get until the next pandemic. But, like, for me, I mean, it's a long story to how I got there. But basically, I'd been working for a corporate gallery in Chelsea and getting paycheck, health insurance, like doing all right. Then COVID hit, I got fired. And I've always been pretty good with saving money just cause like, that's who I am. And, uh, and so I found this spot on St. Mark's and I was like, damn, like that'd be kind of sick to have a gallery on St. Mark's. And I'd already done my own gallery before the corporate gallery. Mm. So I knew what it was like to sit there all day and fucking whatever. And, And it was only because of COVID that I I had this opportunity to get this space on St. Mark's. And uh, and then that gallery, I was like, fuck, I want to make a gallery for the kids that hang out on St. Mark's. Like, I don't give a shit about the art world anymore. I want this to be for the kid I was when I was 17, looking just to be comfortable walking into a gallery. So that, like, changed my whole perspective. Just that location. And then... A year went by, landlord wanted to double the rent or whatever. So I went down to Henry Street, which is where I am now, and there's a whole gallery scene down there. And on St. Marks, the landlord was always breathing down my neck. He like wanted to like profit share, do all this crazy shit. But he people in the art world don't make money. Like they front like they make money. Yeah some people make money but like a lot of that shit is bullshit like even the big Chelsea galleries they're all running on debt and like you know they might pretend to fly around to Miami or whatever but like (laughs) there's a lot of overhead you gotta sell a lot of art to cover that and art is sort of like a trending thing you know you could be the hot artist one year and nobody buys your shit the next you know and so galleries need 40 artists to always kind of be able to pay the rent Um, but yeah, so I kind of sort of took it upon myself to show these kids that this is possible, that I'm a fuck up. Like I have no credit. I have like, I'm like so bad business wise. And if I can do it, you can do it. You know, like I don't even know what I'm doing. Like for the most part, it's like, I have no plan business or otherwise it's just like all right what's next you know how, how did you learn to like how the fuck did you get into this like how did you learn for
0: example if if, I, if it was up to me to do it i would i wouldn't know the first place to go like i would probably just walk into a place that has a four lease or four rent sign yeah. and be like yo like uh how much a month or some crazy like it would be the worst possible way i could probably approach it like how did you learn how to do all this how'd you learn how to contact artists set up an actual show are there any documents like how'd you learn this shit
1: Just fucking wing it. You know, it's like (laughs) it's um it's like I don't know because alright, so you have to go like way, 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 way back, right? So when I'm fourteen I meet Larry Clark, right? I don't know what Larry who Larry Clark is, what he does, whatever. He's talking about this movie. I'm like, uh you know, a lot of people are a little suspicious of like what the fuck's this old man talking about? And He'd be hanging out with, like, Andy Roy and shit.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: Mark Gonzalez and Mickey Reyes and all these dudes. And, you, and Julian Stranger. And you'd go over his house, and you'd have all these fucked up skaters there drinking. And then all this weird art on his walls. Like, Mike Kelly, Christopher Wool, like, today's, like, heavy hitters. He was friends with all those dudes. And so, like, I'm already, like, absorbing this shit. Like, wait, photos of stuffed animals can be art? Like, what the fuck? Like... You know, I thought everything had to be, like, Picasso or whatever. And then, obviously, like, growing up skating, looking at graphics. I don't know. It's like you're just absorbing it all the time. And then, I mean, all my friends, just a lot of artists come out of skateboarding. And so you have that foundation for a friendship. And you have the same references and, you know, you talk shit. And... uh So, Ryan McGinley, the photographer, was a skateboarder. And uh, we worked at, like, kind of competing skate shops in New Jersey at the time, before we moved into the city. And uh, Ryan's house was sort of like the party house, like his apartment. And it was him and Teddy Luanakis, Dan Colin, and... uh, who Kid America would live there? Um, it was just like a flop house, mm-hmm. which, in some respects, kind of became like the Iraq headquarters in a weird way. Because um, like Kunle would always be there, Fanta. This like is No, no, no. This is on Seventh Street in okay. New York. Like I walked by the stoop the other day, and I got like nostalgic. Like, damn, remember that stoop? Like that was sick. We had so many good times on that stoop. <laughs> Because that's what you do. You would just, like, get drunk and, like, figure it out. All right, where's the party tonight? Like, whose night can we go ruin? You know, like, we're... We, like, were kind of unstoppable at that point. You know, we would just, like, go and ruin parties. Just everybody was fucked up on different shit. And it was always just chaos. But so fun when you're young. And uh, so now to Ryan and Dan and Dash and... All these other kids kind of orbiting the 7th Street apartment. And just like nightlife in general. Like it seemed like nobody had jobs. Like I said, like everybody was just an artist or trying to figure out who they wanted to be in New York. And then you just meet other people. And like uh, one of those people was my friend Nate Lowman who became one of my best friends. And so, you know, you're just getting fucked up talking about life and art and all this shit. Like, that's what we were kind of obsessed with. And we were talking about art so much that we were, at some point, we are like, let's just fucking start a gallery. Like, who the fuck cares? This like, was way back then. No, this, see, that's what I'm saying. It's like a long journey together. Okay, get okay. So this is probably 15 years ago. Okay? okay. And so we got this little storefront window that was in front of somebody's studio. And we called it Home Alone Gallery because the art was in there by itself. And if you had a brick, you could get like a $50,000 painting. It's like, you know, it was so crazy. And the artist would do it with us because our motto was like, the artist is always right, even if it's wrong. Like, we can't tell the artist what to do. We're in no position to do that. Even though it's our house, they're still the artist. You know, you got to give them that respect. And so... uh so that kind of worked in a weird way. It was open 24 hours, because it was a fucking window, and it was maybe half the size of this room. It was, it was small, but people liked it. And, um, and then we did Home Alone 2. That was a more official space, where we got the front storefront that somebody else was sharing. And the front was kind of built out like an art gallery. So that's when it kind of like took a step up. Um and then because again we didn't sell art because Nate's an artist, our other partner, Hannah Leiden's an artist. They they, they didn't want to sell art. And uh and they also kind of didn't want to be there. They just wanted to like put together shows. So I became the like front of the house dude just by chance. And uh so again we had great relationships with the artists. The galleries liked us because we weren't like trying to bank off them. We weren't trying to get a cut of the sales for the artists because nothing was for sale. So that gave me enough of a resu- resume to go work for like a major gallery. Mm. But it was all just like, ride it till the wheels fall off. You know, like, I don't know what I'm doing. You didn't have any like major long-term plan? No, i like my current lease is two years. And every time mm. I'm like, After this shit, I'm stopping. Like, why do I continue to do this? Like, I don't make money off this shit. Like, I break even, but I have another job. That's how I make money. I've always had a side hustle to kind of afford me what I can do. Like, and they complement each other. Like, you know, like when I was acting and DJing. Like, they're not that far removed. It's not fucking, you know. It's still in the creative field yeah, a little yeah. bit, and you know obviously, I like music and blah blah blah, so um but yeah it's yeah it's just fucking going for it, like I am the art handler, I'm the accountant, I'm the fucking everything, so like if shit fails, it's all on me, but I'd rather that than depend on a business person to try to help guide me and perhaps make suggestions and then maybe want to curate a show and then like this. Yeah. And it's like, I don't trust people with money. Yeah. They slowly start fucking putting their foot in mm-hmm. before, you know, it. so like I just take it upon myself to do it. And you know, it's crazy. I think I'm like extremely lazy and like, I feel like I'm extremely like, uh, like, uh, like I procrastinate and I don't deal with shit, but somehow I'm able to maintain all this stuff, you know? Yeah. So it's 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 hard, you know. And I have a kid, so there's that. So would Home Alone not make money? Like for yeah. example? No, we we didn't want to make money. That would, that wasn't the point. The point okay. was to show shit we liked. Would you pay?
0: Would you pay the artists who are show there? Do they have to pay you? Like how does this? How does it no, work? No, no, no.
1: Generally, it's like friends, or you know, now with social media, like everybody's your friend. So you just reach out and you're like, hey, I like your shit. Um. You know, you go to a bar, you meet an artist, you be like, hey, I want to come over to your studio, look at your stuff. And then you're like, hey, you want to do an art show? Boom, like that. Like, even with this current, like, uh, public access thing I'm doing. So in July, I got out of St. Mark's. I was like, all right, I'm gonna take some time off, kick it with my kid, go upstate, whatever. August 1st, I signed the lease on this new place. I didn't even know I had credit to sign a lease. I've never been on a lease. But I walked around Chinatown. A lot of my friends have galleries down there. And I found this space. And it used to be the Have a Good Time store. long okay. store. Sure. So it's pretty built out already. And I was like, I think I can make this work. And they wanted my rent to be a certain amount. And I said, I'll give you this amount. And they were like, okay, let's run your credit. I was like, good luck with that. I don't know what my credit is. But I think it was the timing of it and the fact that I didn't, like, argue too much with the landlords. And they, they, they like art galleries down there because the art galleries are pretty quiet and they just fucking do their thing. And uh, so weirdly, the landlord, he said, the only thing is nothing illegal, I said, what do, you, what do you mean by illegal? He goes, you know, gambling. I was like, oh, sure. That's that's easy, you know. And I haven't heard from him since. And that's fucking great. You know, I love it. He, he doesn't care what I do. And there's an elementary school across the street, so I'm mindful of that. But mm-hmm. other than that, I could be gambling in there. He wouldn't know. You know, it's like, you could do whatever the fuck you want. It's just, like, basically, you have to have the balls to fail. That's, like, my whole thing. And, like, when I opened, after leaving the fucking blue chip gallery, I thought to myself, how much can I afford to lose financially? Like, I have this much saved. And if I lose all of it, will it be a, be worth it? And I was like, yeah. Like, you know, some people buy cars or go on vacations. A, having a gallery and staying busy is what keeps me sane, mm-hmm. you know. It's exhausting myself and like and that and we have broken even like we didn't lose all our money you know so that's cool but for me it's more important that the artist who put the time in to give me a show gets paid you know it's like that i understand these people are taking time away from their family or whatever to kind of create this work to show in my gallery so so I'll try to sell the art for th- for them, and of course I get a cut. But it's a bad feeling when nothing sells, and you have to tell the artist like nothing sold. That sucks, you know. Would you would you ever get stressed about money when uh, when you
0: would be doing these things, especially when like you're like oh if I if I sold all of the I mean if I spent all of my savings or what I have for this would it be worth it
1: Would it not like doing these calculations would it stress you out? No, I don't. Dude, I, like, fucking never look at my bank account. (laughs) Like, I don't even want to know. But again, I know that I'm not in debt, and that's important. And if the money all goes away, I'll get more next month. Like, you know, I've always just, like, been figuring it out. There was, I don't know when the fuck, the last time my mom gave me money, like, when I was 16 or some shit. Like, I've never gotten handouts from anybody. I always just hustle. And, uh... And you you know what's really important for young artists to do is trade with their friends, trade art with their friends, right? Because some of my friends have become successful artists, and I own their art. And so that is the backup plan. That's the emergency plan. If there ever comes a day where I have to sell a painting, which I've never sold a painting in my life of my own collection, that can get me out of danger. You know, I didn't know that, my friend's painting was gonna be worth money later on. He just gave it to me because we were boys, you know? So, it's, it's good for kids to trade art because there is nothing financial to begin with because you're just trading. Um, but maybe one of you gets lucky and gets a good artwork, you know? So, yeah, I never think about art. I mean, I never think about money I mean, I do, like at the first of the month, I'm like, damn, like that was a lot of money. Like paying rent on my house, paying rent on the gallery. Like, again, I'm bad at business. So I have to do all the accounting for the gallery. Like, all right, I got this much money. I got to give it to the artist and like whatever. And so like somebody wanted to buy some shit the other day they're like don't you got apple pay or something or i was like i got venmo like that's about it you know and like digital currency i don't know anything about that like there are kids that are miles ahead of me when it comes to this like marketing branding like i think of like jerry sue and his hat company i'm like this motherfucker is making way more money than me making hats because he's got somebody that's like smart on the business side of it. So, I do think about, I do think, like, I should get better at this, but I kind of, like, don't even really have the time. Like, yeah.
0: I I remember, and there's this one interview you had where you talked about how, in terms of money, the way you think about it is just, like, if you have enough to eat, a place to sleep, food, and, like, uh, just the ability to dictate what it is you're doing with your time to a certain degree, then you're good. You don't have to... Necessarily be rich.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's about being content with what you have, and finding freedom in the idea of like not competing with people. It's like I don't need that what that person has, you know. And um, I, yeah, I, I've never really. We all need money to survive, and this and that, but, like, yeah, I'm not really into, like, material shit, like, I think I would be a really terrible thief, even if I tried, but, like, I never need something so bad that I need to go steal it, I'll just live without that thing, you know, my one addiction, probably the main one, is, like, records, like, if I go in a record shop, I'm Fucked, because I'm dropping $100 easy. That's, like, like I'll be on a corner being, like, don't go down the street, man. Like, you know there's a record shop on the street. Like, don't go down the street, because I know I'm going to spend some money. What is it about the records? I just fucking love records, man. I love record shops. I love the feeling. I love, to me, it, like, replaced the skateboard shop. You know, skateboard shop's a hangout more than anything. Record shop, you get to know the employees, you know, you there's new shit all the time you'll never hear every kind of music there's always something new to discover and or maybe you fill some gaps that you think you might have and it's just endless you know and so so that's my shit yeah um and again it's just like uh just being careful like I'm I'm weirdly cheap like yeah I don't know like I feel bad if I spend like $40 a day or something I'm like I'm like the type of dude who gets like pizza every day because I'm just trying to sustain like I don't give a shit about fancy restaurants or anything Mm -hmm. but then I'll spend money on some bullshit and be like why did I do that you know I don't know it's it's, I have a weird relationship with it and I always have yeah
2: I know what you mean with the like not looking at your bank account too often because uh there's like that movie and book uh, into the wild where the the kid goes um like money makes you cautious you know what i mean and and then the in the movie he like burns all his money before he sets out to alaska like before he was like he's just so unsure of the future but he still does it because he just wants to be completely free from like society in a way and uh it reminds me of like um this new thing called cryptocurrency and all that stuff coming out um i tried it out for like a month or two and I deleted it right away i took all my money out because i couldn't stop paying attention to it i was like oh it's up today it's down today and it was messing with like my emotions pretty much because i was just so worried about the future and where my money was jumping around so i just deleted that stuff and like don't want anything to do with that you know what i mean
1: yeah and it's also like nfts it's like very interesting to hear young kids they're like basically trying to be like power brokers and like, oh, did you get this new Ethereum coin or some shit? I mean, I sound like a toy even talking about it cause, But I actually know an investment dude. And uh, when Bitcoin first came out, he's like, give me 10 grand. And I was like, really? nah, I like to see my money. <laughs> like, I was yeah. like, what the fuck, Bitcoin? I'm not- I would be so rich no, if so I listened rich to that right dude's now. advice. Yeah, yeah. And he got rich off it no and, people
2: profit so much off this right now and uh
1: so there's things like that where you like maybe like kick yourself a little bit but you also don't yeah. stress it you're like well fucking yeah. th- that didn't dictate me in any way shape or form so you know there's also people who get bitcoin and then lose their password mm-hmm. and so like that must suck You're like, fuck, I got a million dollars, but I don't know the password.
2: The way I seen it was like, I felt like I was chasing my own tail. And I know a lot of people I work with too, they've become like millionaires on on Bitcoin, like regular union plumbers just becoming, having million dollars in their their Coinbase account. Like it's insane. You can transfer that to, to to real money? Yeah, it's real money. I mean, you get like tax for using the app and all that stuff, but it's real money. They have it. But what I notice in those people, it's like, I'm like, when is it enough? When are you gonna take out that money? They're like, no, no, I need to let it sit. Like, I'm like, take out some. They're like, no, no, I need to like, if I leave it, it's gonna grow and grow and grow. And it's like, yo, what if you die tomorrow? Let's say, yeah, what are are you gonna do with all that money? I
1: would be comfortable cashing out on something. Like, you know, I'm not a good, I've never been a good gambler because the feeling of losing outweighs the feeling (laughs) of winning. I'd rather keep my ten dollars than make a hundred. That kind of thing, you know. I don't like a, a gamble, and so if I had made twenty grand off Bitcoin, I would just pull that shit out. And I'd be like, "That was cool for me," like you know. Um, but but yeah, it's also like comes back like basically the I grew up with no money. Like you know, we were like middle class as hell. Five kids. Mom. Mom was like a maid and a telephone operator. My dad was a janitor. So, like, basically, everybody's pretty wild. You just had to kind of, like, look out for yourself. And then I found skateboarding. And then that was it. You know, nobody wanted to be home anyway. That shit sucked. So you just went and skated. And you didn't need money to do it. You needed money to buy boards. That kind of thing. But... It was completely free and something you could do by yourself. So that's why so many misfits went to skateboarding. It just made sense. It's like either you do it by yourself or you're with a bunch of other fucking misfits. And they could be rich kids or poor kids or whatever. But you generally knew they came from some kind of fucked up family. You know. Uh, So that was kind of, those are like my fondest memories. It's like sitting in some random bus stop, skating with a bunch of people that have no money, you know, and it's like, that shit, that shit was all free, you know. Um, the, uh, and then weirdly, skateboarding gets you into things for free. Yeah. Like, it was so, like, at the, in the beginning of the 90s and stuff, when, like, raves were happening and the Tunnel Club and NASA and that kind of a thing. Skateboarders were such outcasts that they were kind of cool. like, People would be like, what? You skate? Like, who does that anymore? Like, you know. And so skateboarding and raving kind of aligned. And you could skip the line if you had a skateboard. Like, people thought it was cool. And, uh, And that kind of weird shit. So, yeah. I don't know. But it was never, like, never, like, money tripping, you know. Like, also skateboarding as a culture back then, the pros maybe made $300 a month. You know, they didn't make real money. Yeah, they, they all needed side jobs, you know? And they're a pro skateboarder, but like, you know, what did that mean back then? The companies were small, the paychecks were small. You know, if you watch like a skateboard demo from the early 90s, that shit is, it's like, like Tony Hawk skating like the worst fucking obstacles trying to get his $300 for the day, you know? Like, it's crazy how how big the sport has grown and like how there's actually money to be made now. And that it's like more popular than baseball. Like I still prefer the days where it was like the misfits. Is It really more? it's more popular than yeah. baseball now. I think there's like some survey where there's more skate parks being built than baseball diamonds. Mm. Mm. And, uh, cause again, it like appeals to everybody and now it's an Olympic sport and like, who knows what the fuck's up with that. But, um. So I'm sure you're going to have your version of, like, the soccer mom, but, like, the skateboard dad who, like, kicks his son into a vert ramp or whatever. But, but like, when I, like, I hang out at Tompkins. Like, my kid's being raised in Tompkins Square, you know. And uh, so I'll go and look at TF and say what's up to whoever I know over there. And I see kids that are not very good, probably will never be any good. And they're still out there every day skating. And I'm like, that's so sick. Like, this guy's never going to be Eric Costin. He's never going to be Nigel Houston. But he doesn't give a fuck. And that's kind of what I mean about, like, not being afraid of failure. It's not, the, the failure is not what I'm talking about. It's the levels of success. Like, what is your definition of of a level of success is it being a pro skater or is it just enjoying it at the moment you know like to me those kids that don't even care about being pro skaters and they're still out there every day those kids are the sickest because the kids who train like athletes and shit i'm like that doesn't look fun that kid who can barely ollie up this little obstacle and you know and he's still doing it and like capturing his friends on his phone and shit like i'm like that kid's sick you know you can tell the real weirdos and that's what i
0: like that's it's it's really wild how much uh skating opens up the world for you. Opened up like in, in, in many in many aspects and it's it's cool to see too because like uh you're talking about how you had dropped out of high school to just go skating. Mm-hmm. and through the education essentially that you that you that you earned through just skating and the shit that would happen while skating, mad shit opened up for you. Just naturally, organically. Like, um I think about your involvement in the movie Kids and how like you're found at Washington Square Park, skating, screaming or whatever, and it's like, that's essentially a stroke of luck that oh, uh, yeah. could change, that literally can change an entire life. Yeah. And, uh like, let's say that you had, like, you might have been in school at that time, let's say it was fucking 12 o'clock, like, you could have been in school or, like, and instead you dropped out and you ended up in
1: a super significant film. Yeah. And, I mean, like, fuck, I, my poor mom, like, I don't know what the hell she was going through, you know, Because around this time, it's like when rave culture was happening, right? So my mom was a telephone operator at a hospital, and she worked the midnight shift, and dad was already gone. So mom would pretty much sleep during the day, and then go to work at night. And uh, I forget what her shift was, but... um, Basically, I could do whatever I wanted during the the day, and then I'd come into the city at night and go to clubs. Like, NASA was probably the main one. And then I would try to get back to Jersey for, like, breakfast with my mom. But I'd be on, like, five hits of acid and shit. And, like, so that was sort of, I don't know if it was the beginning, but basically when the, so in the, the way that I ended up in kids, is, it's kind of a, a little bit more of a story than people know. So when they were trying to get the money for the movie, and I knew Harmony a little bit. Harmony was kind of a skater. Larry, everybody was like a little like, ah. Oh. But eventually Larry became like my father. So, um, so I have a lot to speak on that as well. But so when they were trying to get the money for kids, uh, Larry and Harmony actually did a photo shoot for like the face or something, using some of the people in the movie, trying to get sort of a feel through photography of what the movie was going to be. and there's a kid in that photo shoot that was supposed to play telly, but he got too old in the two years it took them to get the money. So he like, basically like hit puberty or something, you know And then Kim Cardona, the skateboarder who I was friends with from New Jersey, was supposed to play telly. And his mom knew who Larry Clark was, and was like, hell no. (laughs) Like, (laughs) my son ain't gonna be in your movie. And then, somehow I got involved, and nobody liked that decision. Only Harmony and Larry. Like, the producers, like, can't even understand what he says. Like, they want to send me to (laughs) speech therapy. And uh, my favorite quote of Larry's, somebody was like, yeah, but he's not good looking. And Larry said, well, a good, a good looking guy wouldn't need to chase pussy, <laughs> which is kind of true. Like they needed kind of an awkward guy who would like have, this was like his thing was he'd go out and try to find girls. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't like girls were coming to him. Um, and then, because I was 16, was I, sitting, I was 16 when I made it? I don't even know. I was sixty, I was under 18. And so Larry had to meet with my mom. And uh, my mom was pretty hip to it. Like, she knew that it was all real. You know, outside of the sex shit, some people might be having sex, but I wasn't having sex back then. Um, The fighting, the hanging out all day, the drinking. My mom, being a mom, knew that that was what's up. And so, and she really liked Larry. And so that's how I kind of ended up doing it. Um, but, but yeah, so, and then, yeah, I'm trying to, fuck, I can't remember, well, I guess we made it in 93, came out in 95. Um, but now I'm a 17 year old kid. And, again, there's lots of insecurities. I'll always be from New Jersey. That feeling will never leave me. Like, I like being the underdog. I like being the outcast. But now representing New York City in this movie and getting a lot of hate from it is kind of fucked up. And, again, I'm 17. Like, I don't know what to do with this. And people don't know if it's real or a movie. And the distribution company Miramax, or it was called something else because it was, like, I don't know, unrated or rated x or some shit but they didn't let any of the actors do any of the promotion because they wanted to keep the lines blurred Mm. they didn't want people to think these people are just actors you know and justin pierce very much like his part harold hunter very much like his part rosario very much like her part the only two people where it was like a stretch is like me and Chloe. Cause Chloe was a last minute decision. She wasn't supposed to play that part. They had an actress that was supposed to play that part. And the, and me being a skater from New Jersey, it was like hard enough to hang out with those dudes. Harold was always cool, but everybody else was dicks. And they would remind you you were from Jersey every second they got. <laughs> and you would just, and, but like Bobby Puglio's from New Jersey. We had good fucking skaters from yeah. Jersey, but we were still whack. And so, um, so yeah, it was like, it was, it was weird to do the film and then be recognizable for somebody who was pretty insecure and like, I just skated by myself. I didn't really care about other people. And uh, so I went back and I worked at the skate shop in Jersey for like, I don't know, a couple months. And know I would get like threatening phone calls. Like people knew I worked there and they'd be like, "Fuck, kill you and shit like alright dude whatever Like, and so I ended up saving money and I moved to London because I knew the movie wouldn't come out in London for like a year and I don't know if it was an intentional thing but basically and again like I don't know anybody there I just go and I get a youth hostel and I'm staying in a youth hostel with some dude sleeping above me I'm like hiding my passport and shit and the cool thing about skateboarding is I go to Slam City Skates, which is in Covent Garden, because that's like, I've seen their ad in Thrasher and shit. And I meet this kid, Seth Curtis, who would become my roommate for the next year. Like that night we went out skating, and lots of Japanese kids live in, in um, London for university and stuff. So I was being introduced to all these new kids. And again... I don't know how I survived. I just, you went there at 17. I was 18. So 16 years old as kids, 17 and then 18, you go to London. Yeah. So I think kids probably came out when I was 17 and I was like, fuck this, I'm out. And then ended up in London for a year, which was sick. Like I love London. That shit was fun. Cause now you're going to drum and bass parties, fucking hanging out with Tom Penny at South bank. It's like, I got like, I fell in love with Stella beer like over there they call it wife beater and like because that was like 99p it was like the cheap beer it was like mm-hmm. our Budweiser and um so and again it's just being on your own and just like exploring and with the skateboard you have the ability to do that you can go anywhere um and then I mean I was broke like when you only, like, only going to a grocery store style broke. Like, you know, you don't eat out at all. You go to the grocery store, you get beans on toast, whatever you can afford, a beer at night, whatever. So after a year of that, I came back. But again, I was like, fuck, New York just feels weird, you know. And the idea of going, becoming an actor never occurred to me. Nobody said, hey, you should do this why don't you take this opportunity and be an actor? There was nobody there to guide us after the film. So most people got their five grand, which is what we got paid. I fucking spent it for a few months and then they were back to where they began before the film. You know, which is like kind of fucked up. Like somebody should have stepped in and been like, hey, these, these are opportunities. And uh, so I came back from London Again, New York felt weird. So I went to L.A. And, like, I didn't go to L.A. to to act. I went to L.A. to skateboard because I was weirdly friends with Steve Berra. And so I go to L.A. And now I'm sleeping under Steve Berra and Eric Costin's fucking dining room table, where Sean Sheffy had been sleeping before me, I think. And I'm an assistant to Damon Wayne's. Like, do you know who Damon Wayans is? He was an actor on, like, In Living Color. And um, he's, like, a big comedic actor from the 90s. But, like, I'm his assistant. And uh, just doing dumbass shit, like going to Pier 1 Imports to, like, furnish his house, waiting for the cable dude. Like, but that's what I got to do to make money, you know? And uh, one day, he's working on this TV show, and one day somebody, like, I have to drive another actor to set. And they're like, aren't you the dude from Kids? Like, what are you doing? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm just doing what I need to do to make money. Like, I don't, I don't really think about it. Um, and so maybe that, like, I think maybe I tried to, like, kind of figure out how to be an actor after that a little bit, but I still couldn't. But I meet a girl, and then we end up moving back to New York when I guess I was, like, 21 or something. And this is where, like, f- friendships were really, like, formed, like my art world friendships. Like, all the skating shit was still kind of there, but this was, like, where Dash and everybody kind of enter the picture. You know, all, like, the weirdos. And um, so, yeah, so that was, like, kind of the, the next step in me being in New York. Like, this is my new identity. Like, I'm no longer the guy from that movie. I'm now this thing. I'll never shake being the guy from that movie. But it didn't define me necessarily. You Do you know? not like the fact that you were in that movie? No, I have no problem with it. But um, I don't really give a shit about acting. That's the problem. Mm. Like, it's it's cool and I'm glad I did it. But it's not, like, I don't know if my kid knows I'm an actor. Like, he's never seen me be an actor. Like, I never talk about it. So, but for me, it's just, like, moving forward. All right, like, that was a thing that happened. What's happening tomorrow? That kind of a thing. You know, it's like, that movie has a lot of history, and I understand it's important to a lot of people, but maybe, like, I'm fucking traumatized by it somehow, and I just don't think about it. And like I said, like me and Larry are still very close. I talked to Harmony the other day. I still see Chloe all the time. And we did go through something together, you know. Um, We'll always be friends because of it. Uh, Larry did grow into sort of like father figure for me. But it was nice when I did The Wire because I became known for something else. Mm. It wasn't just like, Oh, you're the dude from the kids. It's like, Oh, you're the dude from the wire. I'm like, Thank God. because <laughs> like, that kid shit was getting old. And it I think it like kind of validated that I could do different things, that I was kind of an actor of some skill, but but like I've never seen the wire. Like I'm not really interested in that. I enjoy some of the process of working, like, you know, like getting to know people and like acting and like but again it's weird to luck into something like that. You know, I always feel bad for not being more grateful because I know there are people who want to act their entire lives and maybe not ever get that chance. You know, like I wish I was more thankful than I am. So but, did you
0: leave did you when you left New York to go to London, you leave strictly because of the feeling like yo everybody knows who I am but this, this as, as this uh or everybody knows my face and thinks they know who I am because of this movie part?
1: That was why you left? Yeah, pretty much. It was like yeah, it wasn't a good thing to be known for. Like, that's the thing. Like, Harold's Harold. Like, he's funny. He's, like, crazy. Like, everybody loves Harold. I was, like, the bad guy, you know. And so, yeah, again, there was, like, nobody to kind of hold my hand or guide me. It was, like, me sitting in Union Square at night by myself or, like, Astor Place. And people were like, oh, you're that dude, like. And I don't like being, like, recognized. And it's like, especially for being, like, a bad guy that nobody knows if it's real or fake, you know. After that movie, did the the the, the, the New York kids,
0: like, the skaters and shit that used to clown you for being from Jersey, did they grow more, like, accepting of you? Did
1: Hell you become... no. It was even worse. Like, they were like, you know why I wasn't in that movie, kids? Because I ain't no kid. <laughs> like, shit <laughs> like that. Like, dude, they were fucking dicks. Like, so salty. And it's... They're still salty. Like, they're still talking about it. Really? And, yeah. And it's like, I'm not even, like, talking shit about it. They're the ones bringing it up to me. And I'm like, dude, like, you need to let that shit go. Because a lot of people feel like Larry manipulated the scene or didn't. I don't know what the word is. But there are people that felt like they were cultivating that scene and that Larry kind of, like, took it from them, you know. Because um, they were probably like participants in that scene, you know. And Larry's this 50-year-old guy who could figure out ways to get money to make a movie. Um, but the one smart thing Larry did was he got 19-year-old Harmony Corinne to write it. And so Harmony was of that world. He was a skater. He just happened to be really smart and had the kind of... Discipline to lock himself in a room for two or three weeks and write that movie, you know? So, like, if Larry wrote that movie, it wouldn't be anywhere near as good. Like, he needed a 19-year-old's perspective of, like, what was real, you know? Um, But, yeah, like, again, like, I've always just kind of been, like, an outsider, and, like, mm, that's why, like, when, like, the whole Ryan McGinley thing happened... That was, like, a real meshing of a couple different worlds. Um, and that's when people really found, like, their real friends that they would get older with and stuff. Um, so so why would you decide to move back to New York? Uh, I was dating this girl, Hillary, at the time. And I think it was just, like, New York's cooler. I don't know. Like, there's New York's an addiction, you know. It's like... As much as you hate it you always just fucking come back and it's just cooler here than anywhere else you know like the people are cooler the styles cooler even the fucking terrible weather is cooler it's like more of a struggle which makes it cooler like I don't know it's just the energy of being in New York like and not to talk shit about anywhere else but it just seems to me this is where I belong like the like I don't know. Like, I like the struggle. I like the anything can happen on any day. You know, I'm pretty productive when it comes to, like, art world shit. Like, in New York, I can see, like, 30 art shows in a week. In L.A., dude, it's hard because things are spread so far out. And Ubers are expensive and everything. So... You know, I skate everywhere. I mean, if I don't have to take the train and like, I just see mad shit. And I like that, you know. Um, So, but yeah, I don't know. I like Berlin. Berlin's sick.
0: Have you ever felt any impediments to your artistic process? trying Trying to make galleries happen, trying to make shows happen because of the high rent or because of the soaring prices?
1: Yeah. I mean, without COVID, I couldn't have done it. Like, COVID fucking put some of those prices on their ass. And, like, you had a little bit more standing with negotiation because you're like, dude, there's been a for rent sign on that thing for fucking two years. What are you doing? Like, do you see how many other places have for rent signs on them? Like, who else is who's going to rent this? And the other thing with an art gallery is landlords know that art galleries – generally they clean the place up, you know, they keep it pretty nice, white walls, nice floor. And, and it's an kind of a nice way for them to showcase what they, what they have in two years when you leave or however long, you know? So landlords are pretty open to art galleries. They know things don't get too messy. Um, but you know, again, I know what I can afford, which isn't very much. And, and, uh, so yeah like if the landlord said he didn't want to take my deal then I wouldn't have a gallery I was like that's what I got man you know um the other thing I learned with uh like when I worked in Chelsea because basically I had like a small art gallery in a larger art gallery like I curated all the shows I like put whatever I wanted in there and they got like a lot of street cred for it that was like the The payoff for them you know we'd sell stuff from time to time but it was more about the audience and I was like fuck what if other major galleries took this idea of like basically sponsoring a smaller gallery and paying the rent maybe for some staff or you know things like insurance not only would you build your roster of artists but you'd also build the kind of people who would work for your gallery you know you'd build art handlers, you would build receptionists you it would it would cost them nothing. they spend so much money on these bullshit dinners that would cover a month's rent for a small gallery. you know there is a way to do it, but like this could be an art gallery you know like I grew up curating at pizzerias and fucking bars like where like Max Fish is a super important bar to the New York art world because. They would let whoever wanted, for the most part, curate a show if they had time. And you would invite all your friends, and you'd be like, you know what, guys? More people will probably see your art in this bar than if it was up in Chelsea, you know? Um, And it's those places where you learn and experiment. And even when I have young kids, like last year, Adam Zhu did a a show in my space. Mm -hmm. He curated a show. And I told him, you know, it's what's important is the community. Don't worry about the art. Like you guys get too fancy with your art shit. Like just put good people in the show and don't worry about like the quality of the art. That's all like fucking art world bullshit, you know. And so, so like, you know, like even with the gallery now between every like say four or five week show, I'll have a one week window for somebody to do something you know and these are for the kids that are generally looking to rent a pop-up and I'm like look you don't need to rent a pop-up I need your audience as much as you need a space for free so let's work together and and it's cool you know and then if you do that long enough then the bigger companies say like fuck I want some of that how about I throw 10 grand your way you know that sort of idea of putting in the work and then you'll get paid off later So, but, again, like, this could all backfire, and nobody ever wants to fucking rent my space, but it's not a big deal.
2: In your opinion, like, um, uh, do you notice, like, the youth being more into, like, creative endeavors now, like, like doing pop-ups and art, stuff like that, than back in the days, or what's the ratio? Like, how was it?
1: I think they're probably better at marketing themselves now. Like... Obviously, like, clothing is, like, a huge thing for kids and, like, and kind of identity, you know, like, who they are as an identity. And art is just maybe one thing. You know, maybe they're music producer, artist, and they dress crazy or something. So, and I think a lot of that probably has to do with Instagram and maybe a little bit of showing off. Like, we didn't have Instagram, so there was a freedom to that, you know. Like, we weren't experimenting in front of everybody live all the time we had the freedom to fuck up and you know not everything was being recorded Um, so yeah I I don't know but like for me I think like kids are good at promoting themselves but I'm not sure if it's for the right reasons and uh, I'm, I have a complicated relationship to it. I think there's a lot of arrogance there. Like, I'm dope kind of shit. There meaning on Instagram? Yeah, or just in general. Like, I'm the shit. Like, I'm so dope. And you're like, so? Like, who cares? Like, I don't know. Like, you're not that dope to me. Um, there's Like, I, I hate arrogance. I hate people that think they're, like, cool and shit. And, like the coolest people I know are the biggest fucking nerds in the world and like just awkward weirdos and I'm like that dude's cool like he's not fronting like he's a real weirdo um so <laughs> it's like you know I worry about raising a kid in New York City yeah cause I came from Jersey so I always had to fight for whatever respect I got whereas him growing up in Tompkins hey I fucking grew up in Tompkins Square Park like I'm a cool kid and mm-hmm. like I'm like, if you're at the TF, you better have a fucking a skateboard in your hand. Like, you're not just chilling, dude. Like, you know, like, it's, uh, I don't know, it's it's complicated because, like, for me, Instagram is interesting because it's like good self promotion, but the feedback can be very misleading cuz nobody really leaves negative comments. So if you get 500 likes on this painting, you probably think you're pretty dope, it should be in an art show. But if I said, "Hey, this painting kind of isn't that great." Now I'm the hater. So like so it's very it's also you know what's weird is like thinking about like labels like I don't know, it's like millennials and Gen Z and fucking boomers and I don't know. Back in the day, there was just old people and young people. (laughs) Now, it's almost like by decade, people are calling out each other. And it's become very sensitive, the whole thing. Like, when I was growing up, you paid your dues. You got talked shit to. Like, you know, you, you just were straight up disrespected by older dudes. And that was like part of it. No kids can take that anymore. Like... I'll tell kids the honest truth, how I feel. Other thing, like, cancel culture. Like, dude, when you went out back in the day, if, like, some weird dude didn't grab your dick, that was, like, a bummer of a night. You're like, what? (laughs) Like, nothing even happened. Like, you just went home and, like, now that dude would get, like, canceled and all this weird shit would happen. And it's like, dude, you guys are just maybe being a little too sensitive, you know? I mean, but, again, we were... There was, it's called post nine eleven. There was something to that spirit of fuck the world. Like, we don't give a shit anyway. Like, Julian, like the whole fucking thing. We just hated it all. And so we were going to live fast, die young. And then you don't die and you're kind of like, fuck. But um, <laughs> So it's like, you know, like, and a lot of people ask me about different points in my life and stuff, I'm like, you know, the only thing I did right was stay alive. Like, the reason I have these stories to tell is because I just didn't die. And I stuck around for a long time. And, like, if you stick around for a long time, you're going to have a lot of stories too. So just don't fuck up and die. You know, like, that's pretty much the end of it, you know.
0: It's it's really crazy, Um, getting back to, like, the Instagram thing. uh, In terms of art, how I think just Instagram just numbs you to art numbs you to talent numbs you to beauty um because even if you appreciate it you don't as much like back back even even when i was uh younger than i already am when i'd show up to skate parks show up to street spots and i'd see someone do a trick i'd be like yo like He's like that was the shit and then now i don't like it really almost doesn't matter what they do because i've seen so much insanity on instagram through like just skating then yeah. I'm like, yo, this does not impress me. But same thing in terms of graffiti, same things I almost always see it first online and then and then it's no longer impressive in person. But on the flip side, in terms of art, it gives you ability to reach people that you would have never been able to reach without the help of like, let's say, like a, a Larry Clark. Like yeah. you could never reach that many people, but now If you know how to manipulate, uh, this fucking application that legit everybody has on their phones. So it's like, people probably check Instagram more than they check the New York Times, dude. Like, especially like, uh, people within our demographic. So it's like, if I can post, it's like me posting something to the New York Times. If more, you know what I mean? It really depends on like the following that I'm able to grow. So it has like its ups and downs. But in terms of like the, the, like the cancel culture and shit, like, yeah, like for example, if someone were to film, let's say kids, now, they, they, like, Larry Clark would probably get his ass canceled.
1: You know what I mean? Like, I mean, dude, there's a lot of artists out there that could be canceled so many times. But I think people who have given up, they're just like, yeah, this dude's just crazy. Or, yeah, yeah. like, or they, the artists don't give a fuck. They're like, mm. cancel me? I don't give a fuck. Like, mm. what does that do? Like... Um, <laughs> So, like, Larry's not sensitive to it. Is what I'm saying. Like, he doesn't care if people are like, "Oh, that dude's a creep." He's like, "So, <laughs> like, fuck you." But, but he cares if people think he's taking advantage of younger people. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know. It's, so it's like, it's, it's not that he's not affected by it, but it's like, what are your, what are you implying? Is kind of what would get him offended, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but, uh. But yeah, and it's also weird um what was i going to say about the Instagram thing? Oh no, let's switch subjects. Or yeah, something. um
0: yeah, no no, just like in terms of the Instagram thing, I wanted to know if you think that Instagram is good or
1: bad long term for art and culture. Uh it's like kind of a loaded question. Like so the way i approach Instagram is like A, I have a gallery that I need to promote, right? But I want to promote other galleries through my gallery. So as long as 90% of the content I'm putting out is promoting other things, it's okay to promote myself every 10%. Like, you know, every 20th post can be of my kid. It doesn't have to be every post. But if I slide it in there every now and again, that's okay. So I think if you're using your Instagram to promote other things other than yourself, That's pretty cool, you know. Um, So that's how I approach it. The other thing is, I don't know, like say, I think you can take a lot of missteps, right? Because everybody's looking at the same shit. Everybody's fishing out of the same pond. So as a young artist, you're just looking to get put on, you know, and Maybe you, you'll work with this streetwear company. But now you've done that, so no other streetwear companies will fuck with you. You know, it's it's sort of maybe you... I don't know. Like, you don't have enough time to mature to make the right decisions because you're so hungry to be put on, you know? And, like, I think about, like, the whole streetwear thing and how, like, Huff and Supreme and, and I don't even know fucking who... They must all be looking at these same artists... Trying to think, of, like, think the same thing. Like, how can we use this artist as a graphic designer or this or that, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's tricky because, like, me physically, I go to art galleries. Like, I go to record stores. I have to physically see these things because looking on Instagram doesn't do much for me. And then the other thing I think about Instagram is, like, I met my wife at a bar I went up and like started talking and shit. Now you go to a bar, if somebody's not with somebody else, they're just looking at Instagram. And you're like, what happened to these like random encounters? Like what happened to these like, yo, let's meet up at the spot and then we're just gonna hit the streets. It's like, you know, I'm friends with photographers. The second they're not filming or shooting something, everybody's just on their phone. Like everybody's just disconnected. There's no more small talk. There's no more like random things happening. And I think that's kind of crazy, like, you know, like, not being open to the world. You're, mm-hmm. like, just zeroed in on your phone.
0: It's, it's definitely hard to find a balance, right? Because you can use Instagram to meet people in real life real life that you, yeah. wouldn't have, you wouldn't have met without, let's say, Instagram. But at the same time, like, then when you are out in these experiences and you're just fucking living through the phone, it, it is crazy. And it's like, the phone's like a robot. It's, it's like an AI that follows us, you know, indirectly. Like, it is never more than five feet away from me. Yeah and I'm just checking it consistently for god forbid I miss something important which like how important is it going to be and like I could just see it later or, you know yeah. what I mean it's it's like really crazy how how like significant
1: instagram is in our modern day lives and i think it's really noticeable i i don't really go to too many um music shows anymore but when you see like photography of a music show like from the back of the performer and it's all just phones. The whole audience is just phones like where it used to be lighters or some shit but now Mm -hmm. it's just like the flash from a phone. And you're like, these people are not in the moment obviously and maybe they're just filming it to prove to other people like, look where I was. I was at fucking Nicki Minaj or I don't even know who's popular but it's like, you're just trying to capture this moment to brag almost or Mm. something instead of just sitting there and be like, yo, this is pretty dope like i don't know it's because those
2: little moments add up and by when you're on your deathbed you're like yo i didn't i never lived in the moment i was just always trying to satisfy someone that i don't even care about at the end of the day
1: yeah like and i understand cloud chasing and like fucking look at me or like this or that and there are some cool things that happen in life and you're like yo i want to tell people about Mm -hmm. this shit but for one chance or another it doesn't happen and and uh, you're like fuck, but you're like at least I still got that moment. Like, and back in the day before Instagram, all my friends walked around with like a Yashica T four. That was like the camera everybody used. Yeah. And I would say ninety percent of us still have our negatives from that time period. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of photo, like, photo documentation of life pre-instagram and those are all going to make good books and various other things in the future when i look at my instagram or even my iphone photos there's so much bullshit on there like when you're shooting film you fucking care you know you're like i i got like five photos left i'm gonna fucking you know see what else happens there's a different mentality that is shooting digitally and then shooting they lose value when they're digital at least to me like okay. my digital photos, I'm like, yeah, fuck it. I might never. But then the film
0: ones that I have, even like the scans that I have, I'm like, yo, like, this is like a real moment that was captured. But yeah. R- realistically, like, they don't. It doesn't have to be that way. Which is the crazy part. Like, we, we I guess, abuse the digital. You take, take it oh, for yeah, granted. It has no value because it's infinite. Yeah. Whereas the film is finite.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, there's a bit of taking it for granted and shooting everything because because you can you know like fuck it I'll shoot this like oh this carpet is interesting let me take a photo of it and show it to my wife um so so yeah it's it's like a necessary evil I can't imagine like the the real
0: deal of photographers especially those from the past era that were you know it was just all film you had to have skill you had to know the lighting you had to know how to change the settings you had to know like what the fuck you were actually doing um as opposed to like a phone that does all the work for you uh to an extent in terms of like the settings and understanding like composition and shit like that and it's like i feel bad because i'm like damn yo like i feel like in that era it's like it was something to have a camera it was something to be the guy like like who was doing that now everybody has a camera everybody can be well, the guy it's like, like
1: being a cab driver or being an uber driver yeah it's done you know it's like yeah these cabbies are fighting for their livelihood Because somebody invented this app where anybody could do their job. And their phones have maps on them. And there's, like, no... Like, you know, like, in London, the black cabs, they all take this thing called, like, the test or something. And it takes, like, 10 years to pass this test. And you have to know every single road in London. And uh, then one day, somebody fucking gets their, you know, um, Uber thing and their iphone maps and they're they're doing this guy's job that he like basically went to university for you know and the medallion fucking weird sketchy medallion shit and so so yeah it's like or i mean djing there's there's a lot of industries that could be compared like you know this idea of like skill versus like
0: no like uh, most things i think could be taken over by by something else like Like, um, it's easy to think like, no, it could never happen to this thing. Like how how we were talking about. But like, if you think about like the taxi, um, like, I don't know much about the taxi system, but I know that in New York, it was like a huge thing to have a medallion, like motherfuckers would sell it for bread and shit like that. If I was a taxi driver, I'd be like, no fucking way that something could come and take it over. You know how hard it is to get a medallion? Do you know how hard it is? How would we give a medallion to just everyone? But, like, no, there's a new system that does not involve a medallion. Yeah. But if you, so, you
1: spent $100,000 on... Is useless now. Is useless. It and is useless and you're still paying it off for however long it will take you. And through no fault of your own, somebody reinvented the industry, mm-hmm. and you're still caught on the line for that $100,000 yeah, And The thing
2: it is, is the, the common person doesn't even appreciate the history, it doesn't care. They just want to get to where they're going. Yeah. They don't even understand the differences between what happened... It just it's just the convenience yeah know? and
1: i mean i'm definitely not the smartest guy in the room to be talking about these kind of like highly charged things but um and i really don't take cabs or ubers too too much i'm like subway and skateboard guy but um but yeah it's it's fucked up i don't know i don't know
0: it's really crazy the the the, the fucking, fucking life path that you've lived it seems like it was up. all just on some like it just happened. Like there was no...
1: Yeah. I mean, because that's kind of true. And it's sort of just being open to shit. And just being like, all right, let's go down this road. Let's see what this where this takes us. And... You know, I've always been like weirdly like kind of conservative and not like too reckless. I mean, I've definitely had some nights, but I think because I kind of like raised myself... I always knew there was like no one to back me up or bail me out. And so I had to like, kind of keep it together enough to where I couldn't be a complete maniac. Um, Cause yeah, there was no, there was no backup plan. So that, that probably helps a little bit. Like I'm more cautious than I might let on. Mm. Like, you know, I'm not all doing drugs and shit. Like I'm not like, pretend flashy, like, spending money I don't have, that kind of thing. It's like, no, I know how, the, I know how this thing works, mm-hmm. and I have to have a certain level of responsibility to keep that working. And, like, if I fuck that up, you know, it's like, for me, people who do drugs now, that's crazy. Like, it's life or death, you know? And it's like, I can't afford that chance for one night of fun to possibly end up dead, you know? That which is crazy because me and my friends love drugs like our 20s we did a lot of them now i listen to music and i like like music that makes you feel like you're gonna have a fucking panic attack because it replaces that feeling of doing drugs you know where you're like fuck this shit is crazy like i love that idea of being out of control but you can only do that for so long Mm -hmm. you know and especially like the way shit's cut now and I mean, back in the day, you'd just get, like, a shitty sinus infection for two weeks. Now, shit is no game. But, um, so, yeah, it's it's always just kind of being a little cautious or conservative. Like, I've never drank hard alcohol. I've only drank beer. And, like, that's because I might fucking like hard alcohol. And now I got a problem. You know, that sort of a thing. Um, Yeah, just kind of knowing your boundaries, sort of. I got to say uh just immense thank you for coming mm-hmm. on the show. Yeah, I hope um you got something. No, it's no, it absolutely it amazing. <laughs> cuz like yeah. you know again the, in the the way that there is no plan there is no explaining it either. It's mm-hmm. like there were kind of different chapters and uh sometimes it's hard to explain it all because there's Some fun shit we didn't talk
2: about. No, very well spoken, man. It was very interesting Oh, you guys are pros
1: compared to me. Um, But no, thank you. And uh, thank you for having me in the studio. (laughs) I was hoping. Does Bruce Lee change sometimes? Uh, Bruce Lee has been Bruce
0: Lee for like, so we've existed for like a year and a few months, I guess. And like, at first we had some other shit, but now it's this. Yeah, keep Bruce Lee. Yeah, I really like this one. Very significant moment.
1: Yeah. All right, boys. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, man.